there's no doubt that the army in particular is institutionally Christian and that leads to a number of problems when it comes to inclusivity. You're listening to episode 60 of the National Secular Society podcast produced by Emma Park. There are many institutions in Britain whose entrenched religious characteristics are out of step with our increasingly non-religious and secularised population. Among these are the monarchy, the Church of England, and, closely linked to both, the armed forces. In this episode, I'm joined by Lawrence Quinn, a civil servant who formerly worked for 35 years in the army, rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Engineers. During the course of his service, Lawrence came to the realisation that he had no religion. This led him to explore and to question the privileged status of Christianity in the rituals and culture of the army. He will be speaking to me about the chief ways in which Christianity is ingrained in army practices, and how this can make non-Christian, and especially non-religious, servicemen and women feel excluded. We will also be exploring the reasons why the army continues to maintain its Christian character, despite indications that an increasing proportion of its members have no religious belief at all. Lawrence Quinn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with a brief outline of your career in the army, um, from when you started to when you finished. Okay, I, uh, I joined the army in January of 1983. I was commissioned into the Royal Engineers um, and I retired in January of 2018 as a lieutenant um, In my 35 years, I've served in operations in Northern Ireland, the Balkans, Iraq and Afghanistan, but in my other duties, travelled you know, all around the world. For the first few years, I was a combat engineer, uh, then did bomb disposal. And after about 10 years, I became a chartered civil engineer and was an infrastructure specialist for most of my time in the army, building camps, airfields, that sort of thing. Um, and I've got a master's degree in weapons effects on structures. How was it that you became interested in the question of religion in the army? Like many people, I wasn't really interested in sort of religion or religious issues. Um, I was raised a Catholic. But you know, by the time I got sort of like late teens, early twenties, oh, I just, just didn't believe it. Doesn't didn't stick. You know, the Earth was you know four point five billion years old, not six thousand years old. You know, and just all those animals in the ark. Yeah, you know, I just didn't believe it. But I never really, I never really sort of scrutinised my beliefs. I just, I, th- I think now in hindsight, I was probably a fuzzy believer. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. It was just kind of not much of an issue for me really. But that kind of changed for me in 2006 on the tour in Iraq. It was really quite quite a difficult tour, tremendous pressure on me. Um, and uh, I've, it was really quite stressful. And, uh, and I found that I prayed, which was really odd because I was praying to a God that I didn't really think existed. Um, and it was just an odd feeling and it, it, didn't, it didn't really help. Um, at the end of my time in Iraq, I thought, right, that's it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to look into this. Why did I pray? You know, um, what's the argument for the existence of God? I'll sort this out once and for all. I'll look at this part of my life and, and, and get a grip of it. And so, yeah, I started reading up on things and uh, doing research. It, it led me into you know, how we form beliefs, critical thinking, the evidence and the argument for God, philosophy, morality, gender equality. You know, I'm a middle-aged engineer. It's just kind of not the place that you'd normally be. You know, it was. It was, a, it was really quite an eye-opener and, 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 a, and it's a fascinating subject. I became more and more interested in, in the subject. Some way through the process, there was no one silver bullet, there was no one thing, but some way through, I came to realise that uh, I'm an atheist, you know, that there's, there's no evidence to support belief in a God. 
but also that I was a humanist. You know, if you describe, you know, what what, what do I believe? Then humanism probably best captures uh, how I do feel people should and ought to behave. So the whole process, though, made me completely relook at you know everything from what do I define as goods to what are my values. Look at look at myself, and, and it gave me a fresh pair of eyes. And in, in doing that, I was also looking at what the army was doing. You know, it wasn't just looking at me. And it, it made me realise just you know, looking at the practices we take for granted, there's no doubt that the army in particular is institutionally Christian. And that leads to a number of problems when it comes to inclusivity. For you, just um, on, on the point of your, your change to, to being an atheist or humanist, um, were, were there any particular books you read or was there any particular sort of defining moments which made you have that change? I don't think there was one particular but I remember reading Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Um, and I was looking on the train, I was thinking, oh, I, I read a paragraph, I put it down and hid it. I thought, do people hear my thoughts out loud? You know, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was quite shocking to hear that. And it, it became, it became, it gave permission to think that God didn't exist. I think that's what, that's what it did. But it didn't make me an atheist or anything. It just, it just gave it permission to actually, qu to question. Um, uh, things that you just, you know, there's wallpaper in your mind, things you just used to all the time. And, and it kind of gave me an opportunity to, to, to re-look at things. Mm. And, and you just, it hadn't occurred to you or it was just that no one in the army questioned the existence of God before or among people you were with? No, it just wasn't something that, that came up. It's, as I say, it's just kind of routine. And uh, I'll probably touch on some of those points in, in, as, we, as we go along in the interview about why it is. It's just, it's just part of the wallpaper, just the things that we do normally, just traditional thing. And it wasn't ever really an issue. Um, you know, it's just not something that came up. But it's, it's, it's as I say, that, that process of examination of you know, study, thought, reflection, critical thinking, got me to where I was. To make it clear though, I'm not anti-religious per se. You know, I, I you know, my story taught me the value of, of having you know, solid belief. You know, and, and I can see how it buttresses people against stress and, and times of crisis, particularly in operations. Um, it's just that you don't need, it doesn't need to be a religious one. You can have a perfectly good sort of personal ethos and, and belief that isn't necessarily religious you know, to, to get me through difficult times. When you um, found yourself praying on Iraq, was that um, in, a, in a situation of actual live combat? Um, no, remember I'm, a, I'm an engineer, so I was, I was doing, I was writing life business cases for, for airfields and camps to be built. And yes, I was under rocket attack underneath my desk whilst I was writing it, but I wasn't sort of, um, you know, at Bayonet Point with the Queen's enemies. Um, but um, it, it was hazardous and, and people were killed. And I remember, um, remember one evening leaving the headquarters in Iraq and, um, it was really late, about 10 o'clock at night. Just been writing more business cases. And um, I stopped to talk to the guards. And he was in a like a protected sanger, as you call it, like a sentry post. And I was in the mouth of this sanger. And the attack alarm came, went off. We were, we were being under attack. So I hit the deck. And just then, around landed, mortar round landed, really close to where we were. And I could hear the thwack, thwack, thwack of the, of the fragments, you know, as they whizzed into the, the side of the sanger. And if I hadn't stopped to talk to the guard, I'd have been in the open then. And, uh, I think what would have happened. So, um, no, I'm not a sort of SAS knife wheeling you know, hero that way. But nevertheless, it was, it was stressful for life and limb, absolutely. And there's a lot of pressure to get things right because people's lives did depend on getting these things right and on time and no delay. And it, and it was, you, you really, working operations, even with infrastructure or whatever, you, you realise how important these things are 
from sort of life, life point of the essentialness, essential part of how they, they deliver on the operation. So going back to your point that you, you looked back at the army and, and realised that it was institutionally Christian, I mean, how far would you say a Christian ethos does permeate the army in different respects? Yeah, I, I just should talk, basically explain, if I talk about the army, um, most of the points I make are applicable to the other services, you know, the Navy and the RAF too, but each have their own tradition, different cultures. It's just that in practice and statistically, the army is more religious than, than the other three services. Um, and it's kind of baked in right at the sort of fundamental level and it's entwines in the most basic things. Uh, I, I, I group them into sort of three areas broadly. There's um, collective symbolic acts, including things like remembrance. There's chaplaincy, um, these are the, the, the padres who are with army units, and, and also the language, culture, and I call them the little things. Um, and it's sort of three broad areas, really. Well, let's start with the collective symbolic acts. Um, what sort of things are we talking about here? Yeah, well, you imagine you know, symbolic acts can be really, really powerful. And you know, unfortunately, they can mean different things to different people. Um, it depends on your perspective and the, you know, the way you're standing on, on these things. But the army is, is really replete with this kind of symbolism. Uh, it, 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 and all armies are the same. You know, it's, it's the way in which we kind of motivate people and get them to see themselves as part of a bigger piece rather than individuals. I'll just give one example. The army flag. Uh, the army got a new flag. Um, a few years ago, and the executive committee of the army board, it's the top decision-making group of the army board, invited the chaplain general in to bless the flag, and he performed a Christian blessing of the flag. Now, at one level, you know, it's just a piece of cloth, and what about it? But then again, why did they do it? There's no operational need to do that. They were making a symbolic gesture. Absolutely understand that. And if you're a Christian, how fabulous, you know, great, you know, God, uh, God is supporting the army, He's, you know, he um, supports our endeavours, um, and, but unfortunately if you're not a Christian, um, it just reinforces for me that, you know, the symbolism to me was that this is, you know, you, you may shed your blood with me brother, but always remember this is a Christian army, you know, um, and you're, you're a guest here and we're the hosts. That's what it says to me, it, it, and that's the problem with symbolic acts. They, they don't necessarily mean you know, what you want with everybody. Mm. They maybe include people, but um, at the um, at cost of excluding others. Yes, that's it. And, and that would be, that's my objection all throughout this, is, is the, the fact that you know, providing that sort of privileged position for Christianity does not, it does not make for an inclusive environment. Given that we're coming up to Remembrance Day, what about um, the, the significance of the way parade or remembrance services are managed in the army? I, I think um, uh, remembrance is probably the most important point um, and where inclusivity is least um, prevalent. Remembrance is particularly important for military personnel because remember, you know, we've served with the people who may well have been killed. So there's a very, very good chance that the military personnel on, on a parade will know somebody who has actually died in operations. You know, um, gone are the days when the army was drawn from across society and we had a you know, two million man army. It's a small army now. And, and it's largely those other professionals who will know of, of people who have actually died. So there's a, there's, a, there's a deep personal impact for many, many soldiers. And they are opportunities really for us to remind ourselves of the sacrifices that we soldiers um may have to make in in the in the, in the discharge of our, of our duty we can reaffirm our, our pledge to remember our fallen and the fellowship 
we share with, with our memory and it's really it's really important but also i think when we, when we when we take part in those events we're also showing our younger soldiers that we hold their lives dear we, we do care about them and if they approach the thought should they die you know that their memory will live on within our collective consciousness in some symbolic way so it's really really important for soldiers and uh, remembrance it's important that they take part it's important that they feel a part of, of the act but unfortunately they're conducted you know largely as religious services attendance is not compulsory but soldiers want to go and they expect to go um but they're conducted as religious military parades and queen's regulations for the army which is like the army's law allows for soldiers to be ordered to attend but does quite state specifically you can't order them to take part so many soldiers myself included would stand there on parade in respectful silence whilst the christian ceremony was going around around me and i felt distinctly not included in in my unit's activity in my unit's remembrance of its former fellow foreign comrades did not feel an inclusive part on that and i was i'm not the only person that feels that way you you've um, spoken to others or you've come across others who have have a similar feeling yes that's right. I mean, I once I once I, I came to realise this, and I I started then a campaign of professional debate within the army. So I published articles in the British Army Review. I ran a, a blog site on uh, on the intranet uh, in, the, in the military. I, I did gave interviews on the FPS, gave presentations. I did a lot of lobbying of senior officers to to try and convince people of that. And in my in the process of doing so, I. There was no sort of survey of what people thought, but I, I got a general sense that there was, a, there, was, there was quite a lot of people who would prefer a change. Maybe there weren't as many that might be as vocal as me. I completely appreciate that. And some more, some more vocal than me, I have to say. But but on the whole, a large number of people, I'd say you know, probably the majority, would, would welcome something that remained inclusive and, and but at the same time respected the them. The importance and the solemnity of the, of the event. Sure, absolutely, because you know it's as as you say, it's an event in which you're all, um, you know, it's about morale, it's about you as a group, it's about respecting people who may die. But it's it's strange that if that's the case, um, that it should be conducted from the perspective solely of one religious group. Absolutely, there, there are things known as um, regimental collects, which are effectively. Like sort of very short prayers, and then say, you know, we the Royal Engineers, um, um, and effectively we, we promise to to do good things, to behave honourably, you know, and, and, and be good soldiers uh, for the glorification of God. Well, just all but that last little bit, you know, is something you can join in with. Um, and people, soldiers on parade, want to take part in a collective act, and the, the collective act they're being offered is invariably a Christian collective act so a lot of them just go along with it and say amen or, or whatever but the problem with that is we're teaching our soldiers to pay lip service to these things yeah it's, it's okay to, it's okay to say yes to solemn oaths and not really mean it and that's just really a bad thing to do particularly when we want them to you know to to say that they will follow our values and standards and yet we say but don't worry if you don't really mean it, you can say yes but it doesn't really matter you know so it's, it's an opportunity to to, to say solemn things, to mean things, but we are missing that opportunity by allowing people to, to, to you know, by getting there and, and recognising that the lip service will be paid. Yes, there's a, there's a basic insincerity sort of almost required at, at um, a very solemn event. Yeah, either the words are important and mean something or they don't. And if they don't matter, then why object to changing them? 
But I think the fact is that they should and do matter very, very much. T taking your second head, um, this is chaplaincy. So why, why are army chaplains important? Chaplains aren't like welfare officers. You know, they're, they're not looking after you know, whether um, your family's you know, at home is being looked after and whether you're, you're managing debt and all sorts of things. They, they look at something completely different. They, they, they focus on things like um, pastoral, moral and spiritual elements. It's really quite important, referred to as the moral component of fighting power in military speak. And, and they do, in times of real pressure, they provide a focal point for people to look at something more important, you know, and, and look beyond the sort of horrendousness of the current situation. Um, and, and they are a focal point around which things like remembrance is, is, um, is, is conducted. When I was in Afghanistan, when a soldier died and was flown back, we'd have something called a ramp ceremony, invariably a Christian ceremony. Interestingly, the US military didn't. They had secular ceremonies. So, so I wrote an alternative secular one and gave it to our chaplain because obviously it's the chaplain that leads that activity. You know, the, the, the commander will say, we'll remember our, our fallen comrade and then hand over to the chaplain. The chaplain will come up most, most of it. So they, they're there at an important point when they're expressing the unit sentiments. And of course, they're trained and see it always through Christian eyes. And so we, you know, we want to go to ramp ceremonies. We want to remember our fallen comrades. And we prefer to do it in a, in a religiously neutral way, in a secular way. And and did that did the chaplain um, adopt your um, proposed secular wording? <laughs> he was a really nice chap, and he said fully appreciate what I was trying to do, and, and he said it worked as a sort of as a from a sort of a ceremony point of view. But he said he, he said well, just phrase it something like you know, but you'd understand if I don't take it, you know, stick to the traditional way of doing it. So I. I can understand, but I think tradition is, is probably the real sticking point within the military. And I think it's also important to, to, to point out that, that only Christians from a select group of sending churches can be chaplains in regular army units, things like the Church of England, Roman Catholic. It's policy. So um, it, it, I, I, I'm not sure, if, I think it's in Army General Administrative Instructions, perhaps. I'm not quite sure where, where the, the rules lie, but, but only people from those sending churches can be um, a chaplain, and they're only Christian. So you can't be a rabbi, you can't be a, um, an imam, you cannot be uh, a humanist. Only Christians can be um, chaplains in, in regular army units. Um, why? <laughs> why? There's, there's absolutely no good military operational reason why that should be the case. And, and which types of Christians may? I mean, presumably Church of England, um, what else? Yeah, they, they are Church of England, the Roman Catholic Church, um, Methodist, Church of Scotland, Presbyterian, the Baptist Union, the United Reformed, Congregational, Free Church of Scotland, the Elim Pentecostal and the Assemblies of God. Um, I'm not sure why those Christian churches are, are chosen, not others, but um, that's, they're the ones known as ascending churches. Yeah. How, how would it change your sort of experience of being in the army to have sort of a chaplain figure who was not a specifically Christian chaplain? Because I think naturally... Personally, I advocate for secular chaplains rather than civil humanists, and I'll probably explain that a bit later on. But um, I, I think whether they're religious or not, that should, should be not the issue. The point is that they, when they're engaging with soldiers, they are religiously neutral. So someone who's who doesn't bring in religion and and, and doesn't bring in things that divide us, and, and doesn't doesn't automatically think of these things in religious terms, but in terms that that can connect to everybody. 
and not just necessarily express it in terms of, of a religious context. Now, many good chaplains, is that they say they, well, they, they leave God out of it. Well, I completely agree. Fantastic. Why necessarily then be only Christians that can do it? Yeah, and, and it's important then to have people that, that, that can reflect that and, and be inclusive. Would it be fair to say there's a sort of attitude that um, in order to be properly moral, you have to be a Christian? A peer of mine, uh, the Lieutenant Colonel, um, told me that um, it, it's important that um, he had Christian soldiers in his unit because otherwise his non-Christian soldiers would have nowhere from which to draw their morals. And he actually meant it. He wasn't even being sarcastic. I was, I was stunned. I, I don't think that, that viewpoint is prevalent in the army, but nevertheless, it, um, I know people do, do honestly hold that view. Seems it seems quite out, outdated, um, but I think yeah, it seems that, that that's um, not just within the army, but um, you often seem to come across this view in wider society that religion, um, such as Christianity or another religion, provides a moral foundation which non-religious people just can't have access to. Absolutely, and, and that's why part of my research, I, I you know, research where do morals come from, how might one form a moral view, you know, if you don't have um, an absolute authority like a god much to base it and, and that that's why I, I describe myself as humanist but interestingly um one of the things in my sort of professional debate was I'll, i'd advocate something called o negative humanism you know how o negative is that is the blood group that everybody can have you know it, it's a universal donor everyone can receive that blood group well, well the, the problem with humanism particularly it's defined by the british humanist association is that you've got to reject the supernatural so if we can just park that for one moment, all the other stuff I think is absolutely acceptable by everybody. You know, the basing, basing ethical decisions on reason, empathy, and concern for humans, you know, moral welfare in this life uh, being the basis of moral action and, and, and advocating that we can give ourselves meaning in, in this life and help others do the same. All those I think are completely acceptable regardless of what we do. If we can just park the question about whether the supernatural exists, um, I think that'd be the basis for everyone to go ahead. And, that, and I, I wrote a chart of a secular chaplains based on that, so I advocate it, because I, I feel that the, the best way forward is, is to have chaplains, absolutely, and call them chaplains, but they aren't necessarily religious people um, in, in those roles. The key thing is they're motivated to help soldiers uh, and military personnel on operations at times of distress and and, and lead that, that that part of the um, military military life. So to, to provide a sort of a moral moral support, but without necessarily um, an invisible means of support. Yeah, um, that's right. So it just, we just leave it to individuals as to whether they believe um, God's there or not, and just pick on the bits that we share, the, the, the common parts. So that that's why. Yeah, that's why secularism is important. In fact, it was actually in researching, I realised, I thought, I need this kind of religiously neutral thing, and then realised it's actually that's what secularism is about. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. Well, moving on to your um, third point, the, the language and culture and, and the little things, what, what sort of aspects of Christian influence do, we, do you see um, in the army there? You, you've only just got to go along and look at things like people's cap badges and you'll see Christian crosses embedded in it. You'll see unit formation badges. So if you're I don't know, in some um, a brigade somewhere, you'll be probably wearing a, a crusader cross. So it, it's embedded all the way through the little language everywhere. Um, uh, and uh, to give a little idea, for example, ID discs is a good example. Um, you wear them around your body. You have two. One stays with your body and one's recovered. And should you should you die? And on the ID discs, you are required to put your name, 
um, your uh, RE number, blood group, and your religion. There's no need in the Geneva Convention to, to, to give your religious affiliation. And in fact, it's protected by GDPR. And yet we hand this information over to any possible counter. It's, it's, it's stunning. And, and they insist on having um, religion on, on ID discs. And uh, I know one Jewish soldier who um, didn't dare put Jew on his um, ID disc and had it made C of E. And I used to keep my RC, Roman Catholic ID discs. Um, it's just, you know, why single out soldiers for, you know, um, possibly worse treatment? Um, but by making them declare um, their religion. Now, I understand, I, I, I complained about this, and I understand the army um, will um, consider making it uh, not compulsory. But the problem with that is, imagine, um, um, say, your uh, patrol's taken and you've got C of E, C of E, C of E blank. You know, that, that does make you stand out. So I, I really don't see any reason, good operational reason, why you don't need, why, why you need to put, religion on the ID discs. If a soldier is injured or, or wounded in operations, we have a fantastically slick system that that, that fires a message back uh, all the way back to the UK. And we can we can instantly know everything about the soldier, including um, what particular religion they are. Um, and so long gone are the days when we would mass bury our casualties in some foreign field. They, they come back and uh, to, to the UK. And, and I think there's no need, um, no justification to retain uh, religion on your ID discs but, but it's baked in there all, all these comments that, that these sort of things these examples that you've been talking about that you've noticed um Lawrence it sort of suggests that the army seems um the impression is that it seems like an extremely old-fashioned dyed-in-the-wool institution would that be a fair impression tradition's really really important in, in the army in fact, in the services, but yeah, but in certainly in parts of the army, it's really, really important. It's it it kind of provides that unit glue, that identity that's absolutely essential. When when people are fighting, they're not just fighting um, for 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 them and their mates around them, but there's also a kind of sense that, that they don't want to let down the battalion that's fought this bravely, you know, for two hundred years, back to back, you know, against overwhelming odds. And that does that's a source of inspiration and the army quite rightly guards its traditions quite jealously, but it's shown tremendous flexibility when it comes to things like gender equality and uh, um, breaking down race barriers. And it works really, really hard to, to massively improve the working environment for all the, the, those, those soldiers and military personnel. But it just seems to have this one inclusivity blind spot that, that uh, it's, it's soldiers that have no religion. Um, in fact, one senior officer presented all this evidence to a senior officer and said, basically, I see no case for change. Um, it's just that they, I think there's a just inbuilt traditional resistance to change. Um, but unfortunately, change is needed because the demographics are changing. Would you say that um, the, the, the Christian attitude is more part of the, the, the attitude of, of, of the older generation of, of officers compared with the, the younger generation of soldiers? That, that, that is interesting. Um, yeah, I, I did a lot of research as part of this. So uh, I sent in um, freedom of information requests to, to the MOD and they sent me lots of data that they held on soldiers' religious affiliation. Military personnel are required to enter their personal data on a system called JPA. Um, joint personal administration and it relies on them selecting uh, a religious affiliation from a drop-down list in other words they're self-selecting 
not how they declare themselves. And, and on that list includes things like other religion and no religion. And if you look at the April 21 data, taking all services, not just the army, the youngest cohort, it's the 18 to 19 year olds, 62% declare they have no religion. That's 62%. But taking the oldest cohort, the 50 plus, that's 93% Christian. And remember, it's the oldest cohort that makes policy decisions on the rest. So it, it could be, I don't know, in the army, I'm not speaking for the army, they need to speak for themselves, but it could be that they just don't see it. Now, you, you've talked a bit about you yourself tried to raise this issue in the army before. How did you go about trying to sort of campaign to to bring attention to this idea of the, the need for the army to be more secularised? And what, what was your sort of fundamental aim and, and how much progress did you make? What, what did it for me was you know, looking at the data, researching, doing a bit of you know, critical thinking. Um, and I thought, ah, that's what I need to do with everyone else. So I, I, I write articles for the British Army Review, and that's our, our professional magazine, very well respected. And I was honoured, really, when, when they, they published um, uh, a couple of, three or four of my papers. Um, and that sparked debate, and there'd be uh, respond, counter responses to that, and I'd counter the counter. And, and, and it's conducted very slowly on the on British Army Review, because only if it's published once a, that's every six months or, or so, once every quarter. So I... Um, then got permission to uh, run a blog, a blog site um, on an intranet in the MOD, and that's a lot more interactive, and but a, a little bit less um, less well known, a bit more of a dusty attic, I called it. That was a lot dusty attic. You need two passwords to get onto the site, but nevertheless, a number of people would, would uh, join in the discussion there um, uh, about it, and that's where I got a sense broadly about sort of you know, a, a third would be really keen to advocate change, and another third would be either way. Others. Probably, depending on the nature of change, less so. But but overall, the majority, I think, could support um, change to be more inclusive. And, and I think I, I found, certainly talking to younger um, personnel, that that appetite for change was was, was larger or, or more, more prevalent amongst younger personnel than, than older. But that's anecdotal. There's no hard and fast evidence and data about that. Precisely because, um, officially, no one's looked into it. Well, um, it's, it is ironic that they <laughs> refused to look into it um, um, or waste any public money, as they put it, um, on finding out. But it, yeah, so it's difficult then to argue the case either way. So, Lawrence, for you, why is this change so important now? I think it's, it's as important now as it is, was important when I first pointed it out, because, you know, inclusivity is essential. And, and the army gets that. You, you need all of your personnel to feel an integral part of the unit not to be outsiders they need to bond with the unit to be important it's important for them to connect and as we get more and more non-religious the disconnect between our soldiers and the the traditions of the army is going to grow and we we really need to make the change now and make the change happily not be prodded to do it make the change that you actually mean it that you want to do it. That's why I think the army's got to shift. Do you think that the problem of secularism in the army is sort of a symptom of, of a wider problem that we have in, in Britain, that we're, we're still too, we still have too many entrenched traditions, especially associated with um, the Church of England, is it would, would um, one way forward just be a part of, you know, a, a wider secularization of, of the country and getting rid of some of these archaic traditions which don't really reflect our society? 
Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Yeah, obviously, I've looked at this from my background, just to be in terms of the military. But yes, bishops in the House of um, House of Lords. Why? What? You know, and why? Why just them? You know, why have them at all? Why does that particularly qualify them for that role? So the, there's a there's a lot of little things, the kind of the wallpaper that just been left there, and we walked past it for years, which may well have been appropriate at the time when when we were a far more religious uh, country than we are now. We're a lot more diverse, and yeah, I think it probably is the time to to just put on you know to get new forever, a fresh pair of eyes and look again at the things that we do and take for granted. Really, really, is that the best way to do it? Is that the most inclusive way to do it? We need to be open to change to improve things um, and not just kind of roll back and hope to roll back the years. Change management well is a good thing and not to be scared of it. And just, just one final question. The old adage, um, there are no atheists in a foxhole, does that um, <laughs> have, have any force at all, that, that saying? Yes, well, so, so some people have said that to me. I, I was quite surprised. Um, I can, I can understand when a senior person said that to me, what the point I was trying to make um, you know, was that under stress, people you know, turn to religion. And do you know what? You know, I pray, so I can completely understand why he said it. But at the same time, it's kind of like, it's a little bit tone deaf to understand what that implies. And you know, the, the atheists have the moral fiber to hold true to their beliefs when in operations. And yet he couldn't quite see it that way. Couldn't quite see that interpretation. So, yeah, I, I think it's kind of the language, the culture, and say the little things um, that, 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 that need, to, need to change. Lawrence Quinn, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.